Hey, Blueprint listeners, before we get to this week's show, have a special opportunity for you guys. I've never done this before, so wanted to throw it out there. Uh, very rarely do we run training events once, maybe twice a year. And we've got a special opportunity coming up in June where my top client, uh, a group off of the East Coast, generated over $100 million of new assets last year. That's brand new assets, not buying books of business. They're going to dig deep, share their entire sales process. It's a three-step process. Their client deliverable. They're also going to share all of their marketing funnels and overview of how they drive leads on radio, their live seminars, as well as the really cool one. They generated over 100 first appointments from attorney referrals last year. So they're going to give all the details on how they did that. And so anyway, you guys are my loyal listeners. I thought I would throw it out there for you. Um, a couple things. I have less than five spots available. So it is going to be first come, first serve. Secondarily, we pay all of the cost to come out to the event. So we can only uh, bring qualified advisors out. So if you'd like to see if you qualify, go ahead and hop out to bradleyjohnson.com forward slash apply, A-P-P-L-Y. We have an online application there. Fairly simple, about 5 minutes and you can fill it out. And yeah, love to see if some of you come out, meet you face to face. And share some amazing ideas from an office that generated over 100 million of new assets, and they'll show you how they did it. So, on to this week's show. You guys are going to love it. Take care. Welcome to this episode of the Elite Advisor Blueprint Podcast with your host, Brad Johnson. Brad's the VP of Advisor Development at Advisors Excel, the largest independent insurance brokerage company in the U.S. He's also a regular contributor to Investment News, The Wall Street Journal, and other industry publications. Thanks for joining. My name is Brad Johnson, and I'm the VP of Advisor Development at Advisors Excel. In each episode of the Elite Advisor Blueprint Podcast, it's my goal to distill the best ideas and advice from top thought leaders and apply it to the world of independent financial advising. In this episode, I talk with Ian Altman, who is a best-selling author, strategic advisor, and highly rated international speaker on integrity-based sales. Ian's expertise stems from his background as a successful services and technology CEO for two decades. He teaches the same methods that he used to build his former company from zero to a more than $1 billion valuation. In this conversation, I love how Ian dispels the notion that selling has to be done from two completely different sides that of the salesperson versus that of the prospect. Instead, as the title of this book states, Same Side Selling, he shares how to work from the same side of the table as the prospective client and co-create a plan together. Here's a quick overview of what we cover in this conversation. We begin with why the entire sales process begins before you even interact with the prospect by understanding your client's needs and solving their biggest problems, rather than what often happens in our industry, focusing on you, the advisor, and what it is you do. Then we cover why the sales process doesn't have to feel like a pitch fest and simple tactics that you can immediately apply in order to get away from the back and forth sales conversations and instead focus on getting on the same side of the table as your prospects. Later on, Ian shares a simple question. Why would your prospects pick you? It's a question he then unpacks that can help you to find bigger and better growth opportunities for your company. Towards the end, I ask Ian how he picked his own financial advisor. This leads to one of my favorite discussions I've ever had on this podcast as Ian unpacks everything that led to his decision. He goes deep into the psychology of high net worth prospects, the type of activities and events that attracted him to his advisor, how his advisor built trust with his team so that Ian is comfortable working with them. And he also mentions a very cool idea that I think many of you can use on how his advisor created what I'll call a community conference room 
complete with drink services for their very own clients that they can use that led to even more business and referrals. Make sure you don't miss this part of the conversation as I'm guessing many of you will run with this idea. Okay, on to the conversation. One last thing though, Ian made a free gift available to all of you Blueprint listeners. It's a short video that lays out his same side pitch. It shares the exact framework you need to replicate it. So go check it out. This tool is available at bradleyjohnson.com forward slash 20 or in most mobile podcast players by swiping to the show notes and clicking our link at the top. As always, you can find links to books mentioned, people discussed, a full transcript of the show, everything else there as well. Thanks for listening. And without further delay, my conversation with Ian Altman. Welcome everyone to this episode of the Elite Advisor Blueprint. I have special guest Ian Altman here with us today. Welcome to the show, Ian. Man, thanks for having me here, Brad. Well, you come highly recommended through my buddy, John Rulin, who said you came out and spoke for him and just crushed it. So I'm expecting nothing but awesome things from you today. Yeah, I'm just glad that money that I paid John is paying off because, you know, usually I have to give people a lot more money than I paid John. So I'm just flattered that it worked out. You know, sometimes you don't have to overpay. So that's great. (laughs) Money well spent, my friend. Exactly. So, So as we get going here, for those listeners, obviously we're doing a show here for financial advisors, but for those financial advisors out there that aren't familiar with Ian Altman, can you just share a little bit of your journey, your story about What brought you to where you are today as a speaker, a trainer, a multi-time author? Just how did you get to be the Ian Altman of 2017? Well, so most people know me best for either my latest book, Same Side Selling, that I co-wrote with a guy named Jack Quarles, or the columns that I write every week in Inc. or Forbes. But I started my first company in 1993. We became a Fast 50 company by 1998. It's one of the 50 fastest growing companies in the Washington, D.C. region. We then built a software company also, and we grew both companies to the point that in 2005, a group of investment bankers approached me and said, hey, Ian, we think we want to acquire your company for cash and stock, and they actually followed through with that. I became the managing director of the parent company, which is kind of an interesting way to do an acquisition because you know they acquired us, and then I ended up running the combined entities, and we grew the value of that business over the next three and a half years from $100 million to $2 billion. And we created distribution channels all around the world, a global licensing program. And I realized that I was flying 175,000 miles a year, wasn't spending as much time as I wanted to with my wife or with our kids. And I thought, man, why am I still doing this? I didn't have a good answer. So I stopped. Did absolutely nothing for about six months. I served as president of a country club which sounds like a great idea. But if you want to take something that you thoroughly enjoy and learn to hate it, run it. (laughs) So that was one of those things in life where it's like, man, it was gratifying at the time. And I wish I had never done it. And I realized quickly that I enjoy growing businesses more than I enjoy running them. And that's what I get to do today. So now I travel around the world helping other companies on strategies for how to better attract their ideal customers and how to accelerate the growth of their business. Awesome. Now I have to dig in a little bit because this is just intriguing to me. So before we get to the sales stuff, because I know you're going to crush it there. So your company was acquired and then you're the guy that's now in charge of running the parent company. Yes. How did that transition go from a leadership standpoint as you're transitioning to running a company where really I'm guessing they didn't know who you were or were they maybe familiar with you through prior business Well, you know what? I mean, there was a period of courtship for a while. The way they found us is 
the parent company used this as a vendor to accomplish something they hadn't been able to do themselves. And so my team, for the first time in their company's history, delivered something on time within budget that exceeded people's expectations. Hmm. And the chairman of the company said, how come we can't do that, but you guys can do that? And so their attraction to acquiring us was more about acquiring our executive team than all the intellectual property and clients that we had. So it's kind of funny because earlier on in the process, we thought they were interested in all of our clients and technology. And that was nice. It was kind of an added bonus for them. But they really just, it was funny, a week after the deal was done, the chairman of the company said to me, look, you understand that we think it's great that you guys are profitable and you have great clients, but I just knew the only way you were going to run my business is if we acquired your company. (laughs) So that was kind of the deal, which was very flattering. And, you know, there's a lot of lessons learned there that we can unpack at another time, but it was an interesting experience. And the leadership team there, actually, they'd already been working with us on and off long enough that they were, let's just say that the chairman of the company had an interesting personality. So people weren't highly reluctant to have somebody different running things. Hmm. Interesting. So a lot of our advisors, that's a struggle for them because... They start out as a very successful sales guy. And then it's like, oh, wait, I had too much success. Now I actually have to run a business, right? Now I've hired a few people. And how do I organize this roles, responsibility, everything that goes along with that? What, as you scaled, I think I wrote this down right, 100 million to 2 billion of revenue. What was... Well, value. Revenue was less than that. I mean, it was a high value company, but still significant revenue. You don't get to 2 billion in value by doing like $10 in revenue. So yeah. Either way, big growth numbers. Big numbers, yeah. What is something, if I'm a financial advisor trying to scale my business, what's a big takeaway that you might be able to share with how you were able to successfully do that with your company? Well, so the biggest thing that we focused on, and this is something that I teach throughout, I mean, most of the lessons that I teach when I work with organizations, when I speak is lessons that I learned in growing my businesses and other ones. So it's no great shock that you'll hear similar messages when I speak at events. And that is that the first thing we focused on is what are the problems that we're really good at solving? Instead of saying, well, here's what I do, what you want to think about is, why do people need what it is that you do? What are the catalysts that cause someone to say, wow, I might need help in this area? These are indicators. If you think of it from a medical standpoint, if you're somebody who is, let's say, an expert at treating carpal tunnel, you don't advertise saying, hey, we're carpal tunnel surgeons. Because you know it's a very small universe of people who already know they need carpal tunnel surgery. But if you said, look, if you're having tingling in your fingertips, if sometimes your hand goes numb, if you have all these things, then it could be an indicator of something more serious and would be happy to take a look. People might be conscious of the symptoms, but not even know they need the treatment. And that's something we did really well. Can you translate that to the financial world? I know you've done some coaching and speaking for financial advisors, so we might as well dig in right there. Yeah. So part of it would be for a financial advisor. Financial advisors will say, oh, well, you know, we're a fiduciary. Guess what? No one's sitting around saying, man, if only I could find a fiduciary. I searched for it and Google came up empty. I mean, that doesn't happen. Or, oh, I want a second opinion. No, no. Your ideal client says, man, you know what? I'm just not sure if the people who are currently managing my assets really are in tune with where I'm going and what I'm trying to achieve. I'm not sure whether or not they're giving me advice that's in my best interest or their best interest. 
So it's all of the pains or uncertainties. Look, you know, I've been working my tail off and I've been saving money, but I'm still not sure whether or not I'm positioning myself well for retirement. I don't know whether or not I'm getting the best tax treatment for my investments in my portfolio. Those are the types of questions that if someone has, then they're probably right for a conversation with somebody else. But one of the things that I will tell you for most financial advisors is the client you want probably already has a relationship with an existing advisor. So the rants, if you will, the pains or the conditions that would warrant a change usually have to do with their poor experience with their existing advisor rather than just pure uncertainty about their financial future. Mm -hmm. We see that a lot. Well, you know what we actually see a ton of is a lot of our advisors' clients, because they focus on retirement, a lot of our advisors' clients, really, they've got a what I would call an accumulation expert, right? It's somebody that grew their net worth up to a certain level. And now as they transition out of the workforce and need that nest egg for retirement income paycheck, yeah, just a lot of advisors aren't built to specialize in that area. And so the more they can speak to you know, creating a three words we found are the number one reason that our advisors' clients set appointments, retirement income analysis, right? Yeah. As you start to retire, yeah. well, you probably need some of that because you don't have a paycheck anymore. And so. guess what? So the way you can put out feelers for that or peak interest is to say, look, you know, a lot of our clients have worked with people who really over the years did a great job of helping them accumulate wealth. But now that they're leaving the workforce and they're going to start drawing from that, the skills of somebody who is taking a lot of risks with their money early on may not align with their needs as they go into retirement. And so in those situations, it could be someone who is a rock star in one area, but they have different needs today. And now someone goes, huh, you know, my guy was really good during the growth phase, but you threw out that term of taking risk. And yeah, now that I'm not working, I'm not so inclined to take risk. Mm-hmm. Completely. Yeah. I've had a chance to dig into your book, Same Side Selling, and I love the analogy you start out with because it leads right into what we were just talking about here. You speak to, in sales, and all of us, I think, you even throw out a, a Glenn Gary, Glenn Ross reference early on in the book. <laughs> and you know, it's this game, always be closing, ABC, right? And you say, actually, successful selling is not necessarily that. You use a different analogy. Can you share that with the listeners here? Yeah, so there's a couple of things. First, effective selling is not about persuasion. It's not about coercion. It's about getting to the truth as quickly as possible. So when you're in that old school, always be closing mindset, you look like that aggressive in-your-face type salesperson. And on my podcast, I had a guy named Mark Bowden on, who's one of the world's foremost authorities on body language and nonverbal communication. And what Mark said is, look, our brain looks for patterns. So if the person in front of you looks and behaves like a stereotypical salesperson, so it's like, here's the stereotype of a salesperson, then our brain says, well, okay, so if I get a stereotypical salesperson, does my trust go up or down? No, it goes down. Okay, and if it's a stereotypical salesperson, am I open and transparent? No, I'm guarded. So we're triggering behaviors that we don't want to trigger. So instead, the metaphor that we follow is putting a puzzle together. So if you think of it more about fit and more about, look, does this client have conditions that we're good at treating? And do we feel we can deliver the best outcome for them compared to other people? And if so, then we have something worth talking about. And if not, then it's probably not a good fit right now. 
Well, there's two things that does. One is, you now don't come across as a salesperson. You come across as somebody just trying to see if there's a good fit and if you can help. So if we were sitting across from someone who genuinely is trying to be helpful, then we might let our guard down a little bit and be more transparent. The other thing it does is that now, if it turns out it's not a fit, we don't have the salesperson mindset of, oh, it was a terrible, I was rejected. Hmm. We just mutually determined it's not a good fit. So I don't need to beat myself up. It's just, this isn't a fit right now. You use an analogy. Well, you've said fit multiple times. Yeah. It's not necessarily this back and forth ping pong match, you know, where, oh, there's an objection. Oh, handle that. Go on to the next. Correct. It's more like you're coming over to the same side of the table and Correct. puzzle together. Exactly. And I love that analogy. That's the first time I've heard it. It's super simple, but it's okay. How are we going to piece this thing together as a team? Exactly. So the idea is that, so my co-author, Jack, his last name is Quarles. So you might guess already that with a last name like Quarles, Jack is a guy who spent years in purchasing and procurement. And that's in fact what his background is. And what we talk about in the book is the adversarial traps that historically pit buyer and seller against one another. So they're butting heads. Mm -hmm. And instead what we want to do is in essence say, look, let's sit on the same side of the table and let's take the pieces out that we have in our respective puzzles and see if these things fit together to create a great picture. And if not, guess what? Just taking out a hammer and bashing the pieces isn't going to solve anything. So that's not going to reach a better outcome for us. Instead, we just determine it's not a good fit. So if I sit down with you and say, well, Brad, listen, the purpose of our meeting is somewhere over the next half hour, you're going to slip into a coma and agree to do business with us. You're probably not going to be receptive to that meeting. If instead I said to you, look, Brad, we're going to spend a half hour. By the end of the meeting, we're either going to conclude that there's a good fit and we can probably help you get a better outcome, or together we're going to determine that you're in good hands already, in which case you just get confirmation that you're already in good hands. Now you can lower your guard and say, okay, so this isn't like I have to make a decision to work with you. It's It may be a good fit. It may not be. Yeah. What are some common things that you see, Ian, that financial advisors do that just completely blow this up before it even gets started? Do you see some common themes or trends that happen? Um, yeah, it's in essence promising before you know. Oh, well, I'm sure we can do better than the other people are doing. It's talking trash about the competition. Oh, those guys have a conflict of interest. Here's the sad part, and it's kind of unfortunate, but if your client is being poorly served by somebody else, they can say it, but you can't. So when they say, oh, my current guy, you know, I haven't heard from him in over a year. They're not proactive and all that kind of stuff. You can't say, yeah, I've heard that. And those guys suck. All you can say is that's unfortunate. We hate to see anybody not well served in our industry. That's unfortunate. That's all you can say. All you can do is be empathetic. So what happens is someone comes in and says, oh, I've got this great system or they're perceived as, oh, you know, I want my clients to perceive that I'm a great guy in this field. No, you know what? You want a client who's investing in your organization. You want a client who sees value in your team. And the best impression you can make is not about, oh, we have better research because Let's face it, no one has better research than anybody else today. It's not, oh, we have better systems and we really care about our customers because what is your competition saying? Oh, we don't care about our customers. Everybody's saying that. So same doesn't sell. So if you're the same as everybody else, you're not capturing anybody's attention. 
But instead, if you start saying, well, so some of our clients say what they really appreciate is that every four months, we're talking about something else strategic that we're proactively reaching out so that as opposed to something happened to the market and they get communication a month later, we're often predicting those things happening in the market. So it just gives them comfort that we're watching this stuff so they don't have to. And now the client goes, oh, well, that's kind of what we're looking for. So I can tell you things or I can show you things. And so the big mistake that most advisors make is that they tell their clients stuff that everyone else is telling them, but they don't actually demonstrate how they do it differently. Let's dig into, because we're speaking here, if we look at a sales process, we're more towards the front end right now. You mentioned in a previous conversation we had, a lot of guys even mess this up right at the introduction. So they might not even be into the appointment process yet because they didn't get a chance to even get into the appointment process. It's more, here's what I do. And you spoke to, how do you introduce yourself? How do you create a message that has people leaning in and I want to learn more or tell me more about that. Can you share some tips around how you've coached people to do that? Yeah. So for example, do you have advisors who deal with people's 401ks? Most definitely. Okay. And I would say mostly taking the 401k and transitioning it as they leave work. Okay. So it's mostly that side, but do you have people who are dealing with, let's say CEOs running a business where they've got a 401k? Does that play into your audience or not really? More into consulting a CEO for his company? The company's plan? Yeah. Okay. So I just want to make sure I'm using a relevant example. So if the idea is, look, you know, right now someone else is managing their 401k and we would like to, something along those lines, Mm -hmm. then what will happen is often someone meets somebody at an event. They say, what do you do? Oh, we handle people's 401ks. Do you have a 401k? And for starters, they think of everybody they meet as a potential customer. Mm-hmm. Instead of thinking of, well, everybody I meet is actually connected to a thousand other people who might be a good fit for us. So for starters, if the first thing I do is start pitching you, then you're like, oh, one of these guys, instead of adding value. The other side is that you need to get a really good handle on the problems you solve and then be able to express that in a way that entices their interest. So for example, if I'm talking to someone about their 401k, oftentimes what I hear advisors say is, oh, well, you know, we can probably reduce your fees. Guess what? There are very few people who are making a decision about 401ks who their number one concern is the fees. Their big concern usually is, man, you know what? Our plan is somewhat top-heavy. So at the end of the year, we're having to kick money back to some of these executives so they're not maxing out their contributions because the rest of the team isn't contributing the level that they should be. It's, you know, we're concerned about a fiduciary risk that we have because our current investments don't give people full options. So if all of a sudden the market tanks, we don't want to be on the hook where people are suing us because we didn't give them options for different investments. And so they can't self-direct enough or we give them too much of a narrow list, whatever the constraints are. So instead, what you would do is if someone said to you, well, what do you do? Well, you know what? I work with a lot of companies on how to better attract and retain their key employees. See, on the retirement side, sometimes these plans, people tell us actually end up being a deterrent because the top executives can't contribute because their mainline people aren't contributing as well. How do you guys deal with that? And now the guy goes, oh, dude, I'm having that problem. And now you're having a discussion about their issue, not so much about what it is that you do. And so it changes the dynamic because now it's no longer a discussion about some abstract thing. Oh, you know, I'm a financial advisor, but instead you're very specific about the kind of problems that you solve. So what I hear you saying, Ian, at a high level, 
focus less on how it benefits you, the financial advisor, and a lot more on getting in the head of your prospect and what keeps them up at night as far as their company is concerned. Yeah. I mean, and by the way, the one risk is that what I don't want someone to take away is, so ask people what keeps you up at night? Mm. Because they might say, well, what keeps me up at night is my dog licks himself. And, And you don't have a solution to that. Right. So if you don't have a solution to that, that becomes a major problem that now they just told you about a problem they're having that you can't actually fix. So the idea is that, so if we ask that question, well, what keeps you up at night? Someone might say, well, my dog licks himself. And now I don't have an answer to that. So I got nothing. So instead, I want to start by enticing somebody's interest by sharing the problems that we solve with extraordinary results. Then I want to acknowledge that everyone isn't the right fit for us. So I disarm the notion that we're just there to sell something. And then I trigger a discovery phase to learn more about their situation. So in that context, I don't want to come across as somebody who is pitching what I've got. And part of it comes down to how we've been trained to search for things also. So the world has changed a little bit. So if you think about it, if every time you drove down the road, when you made a right turn, there was a squeaking sound coming from your car and you wanted to figure out what was going on, what might you type into Google? Every time you drove down the road, when you make a right turn, there's a squeaking sound coming from your car. What would you type into Google? Why does my car squeak when I turn right? Yeah. So do we search based on the description of the problem or based on the solution? I put the problem in to find the solution. Exactly. So the thing is that we've been trained by Google to search by describing the problem. Mm -hmm. And then Google presents a solution. Mm-hmm. So if you talk about, oh, we're fiduciary and we're independent, we provide sound financial advice and comprehensive research, no one's searching on that, right? What they are searching on is how do I maximize the contributions of my 401k? How do I get my team to contribute more to their 401k so that our executive team can also? Why is my retirement plan actually a disincentive rather than an incentive to my employees? What can I do in my retirement plan to prevent turnover of key employees. Those are the types of questions that people are asking that if you can address those, you'll probably attract your ideal customers. Mm -hmm. So to summarize a lot of what you just shared there, make sure on the front end of an introduction, I've got some pretty quick, simple, I'll call them sound bites for lack of a better term, but that are going to intrigue my potential prospect on, hey, that's a problem I think I might be having. I need to know, I need to learn a little bit more about how they solve that. Yeah. So it's, it's it's pretty much it. You're going to come up with six or seven different rants, if you will, complaints that your customers, if they're experiencing one of those, there's a good chance you're going to have a meaningful conversation. And then instead of saying, here's what we do, you say, here are the kind of problems that we solve. And you may or may not be experiencing these. And if not, there's probably not much for us to talk about. But if you are, I'd love to learn more to see if we can help. And it sounds like the same thing translates to existing clients as you're trying to work into the referral game. The more you train your existing clients, these are the type of problems that Ian and his company solve, the more they can more easily share that to their friends. And in fact, even one step further. So if we start with the problem that someone's looking for you to solve, then what you want to ask your client is, so how would we know six months after we're working together, whether or not we were successful? And they'll usually do this. Hmm. And I don't know, Brad, um, Let's see. And they may not be able to give you something specific. And you say, well, some of our clients say that some it just comes down to peace of mind. Like zero to 10, how comfortable are you today with the information you're getting? And they go, oh, a five. Okay. So clearly in six months, it doesn't need to be a 10. What would it need to be so we know we've made a positive improvement? 
well, probably anything above seven would be great. Fantastic. In six months, I'm going to ask you the same question. Now, six months later, you say zero to 10. How confident are you with the results you're getting? Here's what we talked about before. They go, oh, well, you know what? I, you know, probably an eight. Okay. And I remember looking at our notes. You said it had to be at least a seven, right? Okay. Can you think of one or two other organizations you know who might have that same anxiety and would like to be in a better position today, just like you are? And now it's a much stronger recommendation because what they get to do is when you draft the email to them, it says, hey, so six months ago, zero to 10, we were at about a five and how confident we were. And just six months later, now we're at an eight. I thought you might like an introduction to Brad. That's an awesome personal introduction. Mm -hmm. I like that simple framework. So as we go through your book here, Ian... I'm looking that we're at least through the first couple of chapters here. So we yep. talked about stop playing games, get over to more of the benefits as opposed to the back and forth kind of ping pong match. And then you've talked a little bit about being unique and narrowing your market. But do you have anything else that you want to dig in on there before we talk about getting to the truth? Well, so a lot of it comes down to this idea of, and I just tip my hand a little bit to it, which is this idea of focusing on results. Mm-hmm. So very often what happens is if we think of the buyer-seller interaction and we say, okay, so you just met this prospect and that's, let's say, the initial contact is the starting block. What's the finish line? Most people say, well, I get the sale. I get the account. Like they ship their assets to us. Great. But what would our client say is the outcome or result or the finish line? They would say it's the result. Well, what's the result? Well, if we don't define what the result is up front, then we might think that we're doing great. And they might think we're not doing so great. So how do we know how to measure the results? Well, the client might say, well, if I'm getting a 30% return, well, hold on. So what are you getting right now? Well, right now we're getting like 3%. Okay. So you're saying success. If we went from 3% to 4%, that's not worth doing. You're just better off sticking with where you're at. Well, no, I mean, that would be a third better. Okay. So you can manage those expectations. So if someone gives you an unrealistic target, you can say, well, is that really what it would take for you to be successful? Because they might overshoot the mark, in which case you get to reset expectations. But once you have a mutual agreement on what the results are, then your mission in life is to deliver those results. And if you deliver those results, you're likely to have amazing retention of those accounts. Plus, you'll probably recruit and attract new business that comes from referrals from those people. So that issue of focusing on results is a really big game changer for organizations. So is that where we're getting to the truth? I mean, is that the key when they're throwing out, hey, I expect a 30% annual return and you're like, whoa, 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 what are you getting now? That's the process of starting to work through getting to the truth right there. Well, so getting to the truth, what we talk about in the book is this notion of, so if someone says, well, I'm looking at a new advisor, why? Well, I just want to see what else is out there. My guess is that's not really what's going on. It's not like, well, I'm thoroughly satisfied with my current provider, but I just wanted to see what else was out there. That really doesn't happen because if you're thoroughly satisfied with your current provider, you're probably not wasting time looking elsewhere. So there are some key questions that you can ask. So you might ask them, for example, and this comes down to really getting to the real truth, which is you want to get a sense of what they like and what they don't like about their current provider. But if we asked it that way, it can be confrontational. So instead, what we might ask is, you know, if let's say you were the client, I might say, so Brad, listen, I know you're dealing with somebody else right now. We always like to get the sense what other people are doing that we're not doing that we should be doing. Can you tell me some of the things you like about your current advisor? 
well, yeah, I mean, he's personable. He's a good guy. And, you know, we hang out and I talk to him, you know, once every five years and he sends me a card for my birthday every year and, you know, whatever else garbage is going on. If you could change one or two things about them, what would those be? Now, if I had asked you, what don't you like about him? You might get defensive. Mm -hmm. But if I say, well, what would you change about him? You might say, well, I mean, you know, I wish they were a little bit more proactive. Well, what do you mean? Is there a time recently where they weren't and it impacted your comfort? Yeah, actually, this happened and they weren't proactive about it. And we had to call them three times. Okay. How often does that happen? Oh, man, all the time. Okay. Anything else? Well, you know, I also wish that, you know, that their reports were easier to follow and that they better communicate. Okay. Is the potential of working with somebody who is more proactive and walked you through all that analysis so that you didn't have to figure it out on your own worth the conversation about how we might be able to help. So now I get to redirect and ask them questions based on what they just told me their current provider can't do. Mm -hmm. But if I don't disarm early, the notion that I'm just trying to figure out what we should be doing that other people are doing, then it might sound confrontational talking about the competition. But if I ask it the right way, now I can pique their interest. Mm-hmm. And then I get to ask them about the things that they already told me are important to them. The other thing I noticed that you did there in that example, and I see this a ton, is I call it like an eggshell. And then you're working towards the yoke, right? And a lot of these surface level comments, like the first one you said, oh, we're just, you know, we're kind of looking around, you know, for other financial advisors. That's a very, it's almost like when you walk into a store and they're like, hey, can I help you? No, I'm just looking, you know, that's. Yeah. Because I don't want to yeah. be bothered, right? And, yep. and it just let me wander around on my own until I find something I like. And what you did right there with those examples of the questions was you dug a little deeper, a little deeper, a little deeper. So yeah. is there a certain methodology that you utilize there in getting to the truth or just kind of go with where they're taking you? Well, there's definitely a methodology. I mean, there's a, you know, I teach these full day workshops all around North America that it's basically just customer demand. I get enough people in an area to say, hey, will you come do one in our area and then we schedule one in that region. Most of the stuff I do is in-house for companies, but I do some of these around the country as well. And so we spend a lot of time on specific questions that we ask that says, so there's a framework that we use for taking notes in a meeting called the same side quadrants. And the idea is that the way people buy and the way people approve decisions comes down to the superficial interest they have is what we call the issue. Then we get into what happens if they don't solve that, which is what we call impact, and how important is it to solve this that we categorize as important. So it's issue, impact, and importance. Then we talk about what the results are and who else might be involved in this and who else is impacted by this situation going on. And so if you think of it that way, in the upper left, we have issue. In the upper right, we have impact and importance. In the lower left, we have results. In the lower right, we have others impact. And the idea is when you meet with a client and they say, well, so you know, I'm just shopping around trying to find, see what else is out there. Okay. Well, my guess is if you were thrilled with what you're getting, you probably wouldn't take the time. So are there one or two things that kind of stick out to you? Well, I just, I don't necessarily have a warm fuzzy. Okay. Well, so because you don't have that warm fuzzy, what happens? Well, I'm not sure if my retirement's covered. I'm not sure how I'm going to pay for my kids' education. I'm not sure what my lifestyle is going to be like in retirement, all those sorts of things. Okay. So how long have you been feeling this way? And now they're starting to relive it, dude, for like 18 months. I hate this guy. And, but just by you asking the questions, like all of a sudden, like that person becomes their nemesis. And it's like, okay, well, compared to the other things on your plate, how important is it to address this issue? 
Well, now that they've explained all these consequences, they're like, well, it's pretty damn important. It may not have been 30 seconds ago, but now it is. Mm-hmm. Okay, well, I appreciate where that's coming from, but now we get into results. So what happens six months from now? How do we know if it was successful? If we were successful in getting to a better place, what would we see? And by mapping that out and you take notes that way in these quadrants, then all of a sudden you have a framework and you can look at a sheet of paper and say, this is a real opportunity or it isn't. Most organizations don't have a lack of opportunities. They have a lack of time to spend on the right opportunities. Mm -hmm. Because they're molding their business to fit everyone that happens to have all of these issues all over the place. So you're actually working on both sides of the business there because you're helping them find the right fit for the actual client, but you're also helping make sure they focus on the stuff that they can actually address. Yeah, it's interesting. I just had on my podcast, just interviewed a guy who has doubled his business each of the last two years and sells a different type of professional services that are like an ad agency, a design firm in Newcastle, England. And so I had met him a few years ago and he's been a valiant student of same side selling. And I said, well, so what's the major difference between the way you operated a few years ago and what you do differently today? And he said, at the initial meeting with potential clients, we fire 80% of our leads. He said, so in the first meeting, we walk away from 80% of the opportunities. And he said, it may sound counterintuitive because how did we double in each of the last two years? And we doubled by only focusing on the business opportunities where we could deliver the best results and was the best fit for our organization. And if they don't, then we walk away. And people are like, yeah, but they could have walked away from a big opportunity. Yeah, but that client probably wasn't going to pick us anyhow. So by narrowing our focus, we actually expand our opportunities. It's interesting you share that story. That's essentially Advisors Excel's story. When we started, our differentiator was we don't work with every financial advisor in the country. We were just working with the top 1% to 2% because what we found was the ideas we provided from a marketing standpoint, they actually took some money to run, you know, We didn't have free marketing ideas where just the calendar was full for the next month. And so you had to invest a little bit in your business. And what we found is, unfortunately, the advisors that weren't quite at that point in their business growth, we were just wasting a lot of time sharing ideas that they could never put into motion. So it's it's, it's the same model right there. It's exactly it. So what most people say is, well, I can't walk away from this opportunity. I mean, these guys, I mean, this client has, you know, $8 million to invest. So I want this account. And the question I always ask them is, so if you were that client, why would you pick you? Well, I mean, we really want the business. No, no, that's why you want them as a client. Why would they pick you over somebody else? Well, I think if I can get in front of them, no, no, no. First, you need to understand why they would pick you. Well, I don't have a good answer. Then you should walk away. Because if you don't know, they're not going to figure it out. Mm -hmm. So true. That is solid advice right there in a very short snippet. It requires a lot of discipline. I will tell you, it's a hard thing to do. I had someone contact me recently. They said, well, our CEO saw you speak at this event. So we want to see if you're available to keynote for this event that we have coming up. It's 600 women in business or women in sales. I said, okay. I said, let me ask you a question. I said, and don't take this the wrong way. Do you think these 600 women in sales would respond more favorably to a speaker who was female rather than one who was male? And there's dead silence. And she says, you know, it's a whole series we're doing. And I've talked, you're like the fifth male speaker I've talked to. And you're the first one who brought that up. But 
yeah, you know what? I do think that they would probably respond better. And I said, okay, well, can I recommend some female speakers on sales who are brilliant, who could probably just better resonate with your audience? And she's like, you know, that's so nice. And I've told the story and people are like, well, but why'd you do that? I said, because that's what makes most sense for that client. And they're going to figure that out anyhow. So I could either spend six weeks talking about strategies and ideas. And in the end, someone's going to wake up and say, wait a minute, 600 women in sales, wouldn't they respond better to a woman? And I said to him, look, if you're going to have a bunch of different speakers and you want some guys and some gals and like, that's fine. But if it's all guys and I'm one of these women in the audience, I might be pissed off. So I think you're going to be better served this way. And then they called me back about a month later and said, well, so we have this bigger event where it's men and women. Are you available to speak at that event? And I didn't make the recommendation initially because I knew or thought there'd be something else. Hmm. I just realized for that audience, there's probably somebody better. And it's a tough thing to do. And you need to be in a position where you don't need the business. Otherwise, you might make stupid decisions. Mm -hmm. Well, and even at a point when you did need that business, you probably wasted five weeks of your own time prepping and the back and forth negotiations only right at the last second. Oh, and never mind. We found the female version of Ian Altman, right? Exactly. And by the way, the fact that I then, you know, 15 minutes later, referred her to three female speakers and all three female speakers are like, oh, I love you. That's so awesome. Thanks for referring these people to me. And the client was like, that's so generous that you did that. You know, I wasn't looking for kudos from anybody. I'm just thinking what's in the best interest of the client. And if you're always doing that, then the reputation of the industry is my guess or my bet is that sometime in the next year, that company happens to be a you know Fortune 100 company. That company, someone's going to contact them and say, hey, we're doing this event. Who should we get? And they're going to say, you know, we didn't hire him for this one event, but you should call him because he'll give you the honest feedback and what impact he can have for your audience. Mm -hmm. Well, and you created three champions in the female speakers that you uh, referred as well. So I'm guessing yeah. that might come back all right too. Yeah, you know what? But if I did it thinking about what's going to come back, then it probably wouldn't come across as genuine. So you just always think of what's in the best interest of my client. And if I'm doing that, then you know I'm okay with myself. Mm -hmm. Well, we don't have enough time to dig into the whole book here. Any other big takeaways you'd like to share with the audience before we move on kind of the rest of the conversation here? You know what? I mean, that's the biggest thing. There's a ton of stuff that I write about things that are included in the book. So people don't necessarily need the book. I mean, a lot of the concepts we talked about today, if you search, for example, the terms entice, disarm, and discover, you'll probably see a bunch of interviews I've done or articles I've written about that. So it's not like, oh, I got to have the book and I got to have chapter four to get that. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of stuff that we give away anyhow. So you know, it's something that if it resonates, look, the book is there, the audio book is there, great. And if not, I don't want anybody buying the book who's not going to read it. Well, <laughs> it's, I love how you open it. You open right with the story. I think one of the cool things about the concept of the book is you've got you, a sales trainer, and then you have Jack that is kind of the opposite of he's trying to keep costs down and keeping yeah. companies from being sold, right? So you, I love the fact that you're sitting on two different sides of the table typically, but you wrote a book. How do we come to the same side of the table? Yeah, as far as we know, it's the only sales book written by someone on the sales side and the procurement side. And so it's funny because occasionally Jack and I will speak at an event together and during a Q&A portion, I'll give someone an example and you get somebody who says, well, I don't think that would work with a purchasing person. And Jack will come on stage and go, actually, <laughs> here's exactly how it works with a purchasing guy and here's why it's effective. 
And there are a lot of things that I learned in writing this with Jack, and we've been very good friends for a number of years now, but there's a lot of things that I learned that I had misconceptions about what motivates purchasing and procurement people that I then learned through this process. And it's really the same thing with all customers in terms of how they behave. And once, here's the biggest takeaway, I think, for your audience, which is if the client is truly in touch and believes in the impact that their current situation is having on them, and if they truly believe in the results and that you can deliver those results, the close is very simple. They'll close you. Mm. So think about it. If you go to the doctor and the doctor diagnoses a serious condition and then explains to you that it is a treatment that can solve that and then left the room, you wouldn't be like, all right, well, I guess I'm going to die. You'd be like, where's the doctor? Like, how do I start this treatment? And it's the same thing in business. So when your client isn't making a move, what you have to realize is either they don't believe in the impact or they don't believe in the results. And it's your job to figure out which one and see if their concern is valid. Mm -hmm. All right. So let's switch gears here. We were talking before we went live here, Ian, and you, you were like, cool. Yeah, I'll share how I picked my financial advisor. So knowing that that's my audience here and knowing that you're obviously a successful guy that's built a massive business and now you're out sharing and helping others do that, you would be a target client for a lot of the listeners here. Yeah, I'm sure I'll be getting emails this afternoon. Yeah, now. so we're, we're <laughs> going to put your email. We're going to see who has the best pitch, right? No. Um, so I'm curious because it sounds like you've been with your financial advisor for a very long time. Yep. Early on though, before potentially even became a good friend, what were the decision-making processes for you that led you down the path to selecting him? Well, so as a form of background, the guy I had for years prior to personal work with now, his name is Barry. So if you go to Glassman Wealth, you can see what their firm is and what they do. So before I worked with Barry Glassman and his team, I worked with a guy who was a technical trader. So it was like Mr. Toad's wild ride at Disney. It was like, would be up, would be down. I'd spent like my life sitting in my office with my stocks up on the screen. It was like manic depressive, like, yay, no, yay. No. It was like, you know, it's just this terrible process that I would go through every day. And he was like, oh, you know, it looks like here's all the technical details on this thing. So we should buy this, sell that. And candidly, when I was a younger entrepreneur, it was like, it was kind of fun. It was like sport. And then all of a sudden I started looking at how much time am I really spending looking at this stuff? And after getting my rear end handed to me in a volatile market at one point, what I realized was, you know what, if I'm spending all this time on this, I'm not spending it on my business. And so why am I still doing it this way? And Barry's a guy who would just, you know, hey, if I can ever help with this stuff, let me know. And so I said, hey, you know, how should we address this? And what I quickly learned is that his firm, it's not just one guy. It's like every single person I meet in their team is like just more amazing than the prior one. And the, the level of service and attention to detail and follow through is just remarkable. And if you talk to Barry, Barry says, look, one of our biggest competitors is Ritz Carlton. And people are like, well, but Ritz Carlton, they're not a financial advisor. He goes, yeah, but our clients have that level of experience mm -hmm. from a service standpoint. Mm -hmm. And that's what they expect. Now, I believe, and the numbers may not be exactly right, but I believe that they clear through Schwab. And I think that they have the distinction of being in the top, I forget it's five or 10% for assets under management and the bottom 5% for number of clients. Hmm. So 
you know, which is kind of everybody's wish list, right? You know, I want to get to that point that I have a small number of really high net worth clients. And I know that they manage, I think it's, you know, north of $900 million with a relatively small team. And it's all fee for service stuff, but the level, how they're proactive is just remarkable. So it's funny because I get approached by financial advisors all the time and Barry and his wife have become like some of the best friends of me and my wife. In fact, when we first met, they were looking for a house in our neighborhood, we became friends. They're my kids' godparents. I mean, so we're really close friends. Now, he also happens to be in the Washington, D.C. area. Washingtonian ranks him as, you know, the number one place that accountants and accounting professionals trust with their money and tax advisors do. You know, he's a guy who, you know, they're voted best place to work. I mean, it's amazing operation. So I tell people is, look, if someone's got a close personal relationship with somebody and that person is highly regarded and respected in their field, that's probably not where you're going to invest the best amount of your time trying to seduce a client to switch from that person. Because when I tell people, I'm like, look, the best advice I can give you is every day, check the obituaries. And if his name is in there and his team, like if all of them went down in a fiery plane wreck, then call. <laughs> but, but outside of that, I'm not going to change because I've got such a high degree of confidence. There's times where I'll see something in the market and I'm like, hey, I saw this. What should we do? And they're like, um, yeah, we actually changed out of that position three weeks ago. Oh, never mind. And once that's happened five or six times, you're like, all right, never mind. They're watching this way better than I am. And I went from literally having my portfolio up on the screen and watching stuff real time to looking at a statement twice a year. Mm -hmm. And so the big lesson there is that everyone's got a prospect that looks like that. And they keep trying to figure out different angles for it. And it's like, dude, just focus on somebody else who's dealing with somebody who sucks because there's enough people that do lousy work in this space that it's just like if you're somebody who provides great service to your clients, you're not worried about someone stealing them because they're not going to be able to because you deliver amazing service. And this business, more so than any other, it's funny because people always talk about returns. Most people don't leave or switch because of returns, they switch because of confidence or trust. So it's not, oh, my guy's not generating the returns. It's, I don't trust or have confidence in what they're doing for me. And my returns reflect that. But if you have total confidence in them, even if your returns aren't up to snuff, you're like, you know what? It's just a cycle right now. Now, if you keep getting bad returns, a different story. Mm -hmm. There is so much knowledge right there. Well, number one, Give Barry my contact info. We'll chat. But um, <laughs> but there's so much you shared right there. I was just scribbling a few notes down. So for those listening, the one thing, actually, Scott McCain shared something similar earlier on, and it's the client experience and financial services. You're no longer just going up against your competitors in financial services, especially as the asset level rises, right? Yeah. You're going up against the Ritz-Carlton. You're going up against the Apple Store, their client experience. You're going up against the high-end luxury car dealership and how they get yep. treated when they walk in those doors. And so I love the fact that you brought that up, Ian, because it's completely the truth. And if your financial services firm doesn't replicate some of those really cool high-touch experiences, you're missing the boat. And probably you're not going to climb that asset level as far as your clients are concerned either. So yeah. I thought that, that was a huge takeaway from that. 
the other thing that you shared too, you said Barry, and then immediately after you said Barry said, and his team. Oh, yeah. And I found going back to how we started this conversation, scaling a large from a salesperson into really a CEO as a financial advisor, it's all about the team and how important it is to surround yourself with incredible people. So if you could dig in there, I would love, I think if you could provide some really cool insight there, what allowed you, was there a process that obviously Barry being the godfather of your children, there's a high yeah. level of trust there, but as he transferred that trust to his team, Oh, yeah. certain things that they did that you're like, okay, cool. I'm in good hands. There, there's stuff. And I'm sure, I mean, you might have Barry on your show at some point, and I'm sure he'd share some insight about it, but you could tell in his business, he was very deliberate about, I don't want it to be about me. I want it to be about my organization mm-hmm. and the team that I've got. So early on, it would be, Hey, Barry, what about this? What about that? And then Barry would say, Hey, you know what? Gabe can probably give you a better answer. You know what? Travis can probably give you a better answer about this. You know, let me have you talk to them. And as I started getting better and better information from them, it was like, Oh, wait, I don't need to talk to Barry. You know, everyone in his team is such high quality. Now, keep in mind, this is an organization that is listed as, you know, in two different publications, the DC area is best place to work. The culture they've developed there, the level of talent on their team is remarkable. And so they're able to now attract some of the best and brightest minds. And they're not afraid to invest in their people. So sometimes what happens is I see financial advisors say, well, I want to build a team, but I don't want to give away all of this profit that I'm making to this team. So I'm going to hire like junior level people and maybe they're not that proficient. And I don't want to pay them that much because it's affecting my income instead of Look, short term, it's going to impact your income, but long term, it's going to impact your income on a positive side. Because now, if Barry wants to take a trip with his family for two weeks, as a client, I'm not like, where the hell is Barry? I'm like, well, who cares Barry is? As long as all these other people are there, I'm good. You know, it's like, you know, I was doing some tax planning stuff and I said, hey, by the way, yeah, so I need to transfer some stuff over. What do I need to do? And they're like, well, if you recall a couple of years ago, you set this up so that we can automatically pull it. Just let me know and I can take care of it for you. Well, I mean, I could do it. He said, I know you could, but we can take care of it for you. Just let me know the amount and it'll be done today. Awesome. And then I'm just focused on something else. Now, for a lot of advisors, you might say, well, now I'm taking time away from one of my producers to do this when the client could have done it themselves. But guess what? It just further locks me in because it's like, look, I don't have to worry about a darn thing. And it's not, oh, where's that form? And how do I fill this out? It's like, you know, once you have a high enough level of trust, then your advisor does stuff for you that just makes your life easier. I mean, I've heard their team tell stories about how they had somebody who was recently widowed. And so the mother in this family was going out to look to buy a car. And of course, their kids were like, well, I don't have time to do this. And so the woman calls up and says, well, so how should you do the financing? Because my husband used to take care of this. And someone on Barry's team said, well, what car are you looking at? Well, have you decided which one you want? Yeah, okay. Well, so what's your schedule like tomorrow? Look, I'm going to come by and pick you up and we're going to take care of this. And people will be like, well, but they're not in the business of helping someone buy a car. Look, they're managing very high net worth individuals. Now, once they do that for that client, do you think that their kids are going to say, oh, you should switch to somebody else? They're like, dude, they took care of the stuff with our mother that we didn't have to deal with. We love these people. Mm -hmm. And they're just making sure that, and guess what? That client probably told that story to 50 people. 
and said, oh, my God, you wouldn't believe what my advisor did. And who do you think she's hanging out with? Do you think she's hanging out with a whole bunch of low net worth people? Or is her community of friends high net worth people just like her? And they're thinking, well, my advisor's never done that for me. Maybe I should switch. You know, they run events a couple times a year that are not marketing events for new clients, but are high-end events for their existing clients. Look, if you're a client, you can come. And if you have a friend who, man, they have to see what we do, let us know. And if we feel it's appropriate, you can invite one person, right? And so there'll be a room of 100 clients and three potential clients in the room. And when I see this, I'm like, there's no way those three people aren't becoming clients next week. Mm-hmm. Because I look around the room of like, well, these are the people I want to hang out with. They're all in this room together. And every one of them just says, these guys are the greatest people on earth. And I just learned something that I didn't know before. And they communicated in a way that my current provider can't communicate. Wow, these guys are awesome. Why aren't I working with them? And I guarantee their competitors are like, I can't believe these guys spend tens of thousands of dollars on an event. And it's not even prospecting new clients. Yeah, but what happens is the guy's at the country club and he tells his buddy, oh, yeah, so I got this great information yesterday. Where was it? Oh, my advisor did it. Dude, why didn't you invite me? Well, because I'm not allowed to bring guests. It's only for his clients. You mean that's not a marketing event? No, it's just to inform his clients. How come my guy doesn't do that? I'm curious, Ian, are those educational events? Are they just like, hey, we're going to bring in a sommelier that knows a lot about wine and he's going to share three Napa cabs and where they come from? So the the answer is yes. The answer is yes. So sometimes it's like, here's the person at Schwab who runs this unit for Schwab and they're going to come talk about this. Sometimes it's, here's somebody who's a publisher of this magazine, this financial magazine, and we brought them in. So they're going to talk about what trends are going on. Hmm. And sometimes it's, Hey, people have asked about safety when they're traveling abroad. So we're going to bring somebody in who's an expert on travel safety. And it's all just about, you know, creating a high value experience. Mm-hmm. Once again, think Ritz Carlton, right? Mm-hmm. Don't think, well, does it have to be financial related? No, not necessarily. I like the travel expert. I mean, look at you're serving a high net worth client. They're obviously traveling. So once again, going back to the very beginning of this conversation, getting in the head of your client and prospect, what do they actually want, right? Yeah. And so it's funny. It's like, have you had Derek Coburn on? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. So like Derek talks about, look, if you want to create those great networks, think about what's going to be valuable to that client group. And, you know, that's like just, you know, magic at that point. And most of the reason why people are shifting to somebody like Derek or someone like Barry is not because oh man, I Googled financial advisor and I couldn't find anybody. That's not it. They say, oh, this guy helps me in areas that no one's ever helped us before. This person's helping me grow my business. They're helping me get investors. They're doing stuff that has nothing to do with their traditional financial advisor hat on. Mm -hmm. It's interesting. I've asked a handful of guests that obviously do very well for themselves on the podcast. How do they find their financial advisor? So far... 100% has been some sort of a referral or, you know, you said a couple things with Barry. It was really, here are these third-party resources that I trust that said he's the man, right? Or his firm is highly regarded in this industry. And so I think as you start to climb the asset level, you'll notice typically they don't come from your more traditional marketing funnels like public seminars or even radio shows. I found that a lot of the higher net worth are going to tend to 
talk to their buddy at the country club. What are you doing? Oh, yeah. wow, really? He did that event. Why can't I come to the next one? Well, so. and, and if you think about it, it's not like the conversation is, oh, well, I'm getting a better return than somebody else. Like I had someone ask me about Barry. They said, well, do you think he's outperforming everyone else? I said, dude, if they knew exactly what the market was going to do, they wouldn't be in business. They would have just printed money and walked away. So like no advisor actually knows what the market's going to do. You just want to make sure you're surrounded with a team of people who are way more proactive on top of it than we would be. Mm-hmm. That's what we want. Like, and I want people who are thinking about stuff that I'm not thinking about. Mm-hmm. So when I'm it, pissing money away, I don't wonder, wow, I'm pissing this money away. Is someone losing the rest of it? It's I'm pissing money away, but it's okay. Cause I got more somewhere else and it's being shepherded. Well, I had a conversation with David Bach, who he helps us out on our wealth management front. And he said the best, I wrote this down, the best financial plan for someone like you should be boring, boring, boring. Exactly. And he basically said, he going back to your, your day trader, your technical guy you had before, he said, show me an exciting investment plan and I will show you a scary day-to-day life. And yeah. it sounds like that's what you were doing. Oh, You're dude, it was totally. Computer and yeah, it was really exciting, but it was like riding that roller coaster. Oh yeah, I'm telling you, it was Mr. Toad's wild ride. It was like, you know, just strap yourself in and it was, hey, we made a lot. Oh, we lost. And it was like, you know, I'd be elated and pissed off in the same day. And I realized, well, why am I taking this strategy? I don't need to take these high risks. I just need to know what's taken care of. It's interesting. One of the things that Barry's team did was, my dad is 89. And as he was going through all of his retirement stuff, he's in a different financial position than I'm in. Mm-hmm. And so I was talking to Barry. I said, well, here's what we got going on with my dad. And you know, one of my brothers is looking at this and this one's looking at that. And Barry said, look, we'll just take care of it. I said, well, you know, I just got to look at the fee structure and it probably doesn't hit your minimum. He goes, no, no, no. We'll just take care of it. <laughs> like, don't worry about the fee side of it. We'll just take care of it because that's obviously a distraction for you and your siblings So we'll just take care of it. Mm -hmm. And it was like, and if I look at it in hindsight, it didn't take them a lot of time. And they probably over the course of a number of years answered 10 questions about it. Mm -hmm. But it was just like, look, we'll take care of it. And guess what? If all of a sudden someone said, oh, you should switch to us. Well, by the way, I also have this other thing. Oh, well, here's the fee for that. Like it would have gotten too complicated for someone else to win that business. And you think about it and their firm, they're thinking, well, who cares? Like mm-hmm. it's a rounding error. It's not going to matter. Let's just take care of this. So you know, it's remarkable stuff when it's done right. There's another lesson there too. In sales, when someone is at the point, and at this point, your dad, obviously you're already a client. So for that, it's really more of a, let's just take care of Ian, right? Exactly. And help him with this dad. But you even stated a little bit ago, you were talking about forms. And I find that most people in our business... For those that can see the video here that aren't listening in audio, I've got a stack of papers, but they'll say, hey, become a client. And then there's a stack of paperwork that's like five inches thick. And then the next thing you know, the client takes it home or it's now there's a ton of homework and it's like, oh my gosh, this is complicated. I've got a question on form seven. What do I do? Going back to their process, it was simple to start. It was just say yes. Okay, cool. We'll handle everything else for you. Yeah. Your dad, don't worry about him. Simple. Do you want us to take care of him? Yes. One word. Okay, cool. We'll So I think there's another lesson there in financial services that gets messed up a lot. And by the way, the funniest thing, so if you think about it in this context, so my dad's got this small portfolio and then I'm already a client of theirs. So one of my brothers was like, oh, well, I got a guy who's doing this and here's the way the fees would be. So I mentioned to Barry's team, well, here's the deal. And they're like, we'll just take care of it. 
And I said, well, okay, so someone's going to ask, what's the cost? Like, we'll just take care of it. I'm not going to charge you anything for it. We'll just take care of it. So I'm talking to my brothers and I'm like, well, but what's his motivation for doing this? I said, he's just taking care of me. So they're not even going to charge for it. Oh, well, I guess that's good. <laughs> and it's like, it just ends the conversation. So if you think about it in a competitive landscape, let's say that some other advisor had taken up that small portfolio. Mm-hmm. And now I'm talking to that other advisor. Well, that other advisor now has got my ear, my siblings ear, but now he doesn't <laughs> because that person was just shut out of the game. So it's like, you know, now I don't even believe that the team at Glass and Well thinks that way. They're just thinking, how do I provide great value to my customers and to my clients so that they feel taken care of? And, you know, it's just, they do little things like, hey, listen, if you're meeting in our area and you need an office or a conference room, let us know. So they built out amazing space next to this private dining club that's two floors up from them in the Washington, D.C. area. So it's like right off the elevator, everybody passes it. It's like, you know, people think, well, why are these guys paying for this space? And then they tell their clients, oh, yeah, you know, if you've got a key meeting, you can have in our office. Now, I've never asked them what the return is, but... So you have a high net worth client who's having a meeting in that area and wants to use your conference room. And his staff is amazing. Like they come in, there's like a tea service, there's like a beverage menu for all different teas and coffees and all this kind of stuff. And how many times they're meeting with some other high net worth person who goes, man, these guys are awesome. Their service is amazing. Do you work with them? Oh yeah, I'm a client of theirs. What does it take to become a client? I I guarantee that happens. You know, every week. Who did you hire to cater this meeting? Oh, that's my financial advisor. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, it's just, you know, so it's a good model for people to follow. And I know that Barry spoke, I think, at the Schwab Impact Conference, one of the few times they've had an advisor keynote and just got up and said, here's the way we think differently. And he was totally transparent about what they do differently for their business. Let's even go back here. This has been 10, 15 minutes of gold by the way, for financial advisors. So go back to selling to client benefits. All of the stuff you just went through, Ian, it was how did working with Barry benefits you? Yeah. And going back to how can you share that? This is a perfect example. If you're a financial advisor, this is the story you want your clients to tell about you. That's exactly it. And the thing is that too often people focus on, well, so I'm going to win this client because I'm going to offer a slightly lower fee. Or I'm going to win this client because I'm going to convince them we have better research. And the reality is, if you look at your best clients, they didn't switch because you had better research because you had lower fees. They switched because they felt that you better understood their situation and that they were in good hands working with you. And the only way you get that is by asking great questions about them. There isn't a darn thing you can say that will convince them of those things. You can only get to that information by asking great questions. Mm-hmm. One other thing I'm going to make sure the listeners didn't miss that very simple idea on kind of offering a co-working space for your clients. That's brilliant. I'm just thinking if you're trying to attract a high net worth business owner, I mean, that's a very simple idea right there that it could be huge for you. And by the way, if you're ever in the DC area, Northern Virginia, and you go visit their space, it's not like, oh, and they added an extra office or two that's like, you know, kind of bare bones. It's like they invested heavily in their build out and like you walk into the place and it's like, man, I want to meet here. I mean, I've actually done podcast interviews in their space Mm -hmm. and 
the people I'm interviewing are typically successful people who are like, so uh, what does it take to work with these guys? And literally, I mean, it's like, it's not even part of the conversation. They're just like, man, their team is amazing. And it's like everyone in the office just carries a certain level of professionalism. But I think that's something that's lost because what a lot of people, what I've seen some advisors do is they operate at this level really high and then they don't want to spend the money. So they hire people down here. Mm-hmm. And what happens is it just brings the average down in the organization. Instead of sometimes you just got to invest in good people and you got to spend the money so that you're further building confidence from your customers. And it might mean that short term, you're taking home a little less income if you're truly trying to build a business, not just a lifestyle. It's interesting you bring that up. We had Ron Carson on. That's another probably a top 10 wealth manager in the country. And I think that a lot of advisors, they look at it as dollars out. So here's an expense for staffing and hiring. And he shared, you know, we look at it as we're investing in to the business. So it's like investing in stocks. You don't want to invest in penny stocks. You want to invest in blue chips, right? And uh, he shared that analogy. And I heard one other piece of advice that I thought was really cool when it comes to hiring. An A player is always free. And if you think about it, that's how it works. They take all the stuff that bogged you down and then they do like 10 times more than that. And it's amazing, just as you were speaking to Barry's team that he has, where if you hire a C player, now that type A personality, that achiever that a financial advisor is, now you're going back, looking over their shoulder, double checking their work, misspelled email goes out and you're freaking out. And I've seen it over and over and over. Think about this also. If he had hired C-level people... Would I call them instead of calling him? No way. No. But if he's got a caliber people, you know, I don't care who I talk to. They're going to be great. It's kind of funny because mm-hmm. his wife's a pediatrician and in their pediatric practice, she's carried the same philosophy. So that's where my wife takes our kids there for the pediatrician. Mm-hmm. And people say, oh, well, you must, you know, who's your favorite person? My wife goes, I'll go to anybody in that practice. I don't call. I don't look for special treatment. I just call to make an appointment. And anybody I see, I know is going to be top in their field. So I don't care who it is. I know I'm going to be taken care of. Mm. And too many businesses, they don't do that. So it's like there's this huge fall off from like the top person. The next person down is like five levels deep. And they don't understand why, man, I hired this person, but they're not taking anything off my plate. No, because your clients still want to deal with you because they don't have confidence in that other person. But if you hire at the right level, like in my prior business, when I first started it, I was doing consulting for clients. I was doing like business process and IT kind of consulting. And I hired really sharp people. And my goal was that I wanted my clients within six months to a year to say, well, why does Ian need to be here? These guys are awesome. Like, that's my goal. My goal is that they don't need me anymore. And they're like, well, when Ian comes by, sure, he takes us to lunch, but Like he doesn't really have any value. Let's just keep him away. Well, I needed that so I could run my business. Same thing as a financial advisor. You start off where you're the primary point person. You start growing your practice. And now it's like, well, I need to hire somebody. I know how cheaply can I hire somebody? Well, you may as well not hire then. So hire somebody who is almost your equivalent. And yeah, maybe you give that person a way to eventually own part of the practice. Because guess what? If they're that good, you don't want them leaving either. Yeah. It reminds me, we've got another really successful advisor on the East Coast. And he got some business advice I thought was just brilliant. And it's simple. That's the best part about it is 
he was talking to, uh, it was some sort of business coach and they said, well, do you ever plan on stopping growing? Are you done here or are you next year? Or you want to keep growing? He's like, well, no, I plan on continuing to grow. That's the goal. Why would you ever not be hiring then? And I see what happens a lot in financial services is you hire about six months too late. So now there's this mad scramble trying to find talent. And the piece of advice here was now he's never done hiring. So as he randomly comes across people that are A players, he finds a spot on the team for him because he knows they're going to fit and help him get where he wants to go. Yeah. And, and he just, knows they're always going to be additive. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's interesting. It's most of what I do as a professional speaker, like Scott McCain, who's got a voice like butter, right? Scott, it's like just amazing. That voice is just magic. So anybody hasn't listened to Scott's episode, go back and listen to it. It's just very soothing. <laughs> and it's interesting because I've always grown businesses, a lot of people in this business. It's not like someone calls up and says, oh, we can't get in. Okay, we'll take somebody else. I mean, it's they either want me or they don't. Mm-hmm. And so it's a slightly different model. But Kind of for me in this business, I'm not looking to quote grow people. It's just my fee goes up and I do fewer gigs and get paid more for each one. And it's just, mm-hmm. you know, it's a different model, but I've kind of already done the rapid growth, hire a lot of people, have employees all over the world. You know, at one point when I was flying 175,000 miles a year, we had offices or joint ventures in 12 countries. And so I'd show up in Beijing. And there was an office and an admin staff for me. And I would go there twice a year. And I'm like, why do you guys have this? Well, it's just part of our protocol in China is that, you know, the top dog needs to have a dedicated office and staff. And I was like, to me, it seemed ridiculous. I realized that they don't pay people very much there. So it wasn't Mm -hmm. a big deal, but (laughs) kind of a funny thing. It's not very often I see guys do the public speaking gig and actually travel less. That's a serious travel schedule right there. Well, you know what? It's a different type of travel. So it used to be that I would fly someplace. As soon as I landed, I'd be in nonstop meetings for two or three weeks and then fly back. Now, you know, let's say I'm doing a keynote on Tuesday morning. So Monday afternoon, I fly someplace, get in. For starters, rarely do people hold big events in bad places. So it's usually a pretty nice place. I get there, do the tech check, that kind of stuff speak for an hour, sign some books, kiss some babies, fly back. It's a slightly different experience than in the past. So it's a different type of travel. It's not, you know, back to back to back meetings for weeks on end. Mm -hmm. Maybe even fit a spa treatment in there, right? From time to time, from time to time. Yeah. I used to give my wife a hard time and then I went with her one time and now I'm ruined for life. You know, have to hit the spa if they have a nice one. Well, Ian, let's go ahead. And as we wrap here, I've got a few questions I'll throw your way if you still have a few more minutes. Sure. All right. Perfect. When you hear the word successful, who's the first person you think of and why? Aside from you, Brad. Aside from me. (laughs) (laughs) Second. Number two. Number (laughs) number two. Um, You know what? There's no one person that comes to mind. I don't. It's funny. You asked. I haven't really thought of like, who do I think of as successful? Because... You know, I see success at different levels. So there's people I see who, man, have an amazing relationship with their family and their kids. And I think, man, that's really successful. There are people who I see who have tremendous financial success. And I think, wow, that's successful. There's people who are just like the most respected people in their industry. So there's not any one person. It's funny. We had a discussion with a number of speakers recently about Will Smith. And people were commenting that, wow, this guy has been really successful in music. And in movies and in, you know, in television, 
and is a highly involved, committed father. And it's like, you know what? If I got to pick somebody right now on the spot, he's fresh in my mind. If you had asked me yesterday, I probably would have come up with somebody different. But that's just because of a recent conversation. One of my friends is interviewing him today in front of 12,000 people. So he was asking questions. Hey, what are good questions to ask him? And so that's why his name comes up. I can see that. I think what's interesting is when you ask that question, how often it comes back to not just monetarily, it comes back to, do they actually enjoy life? Are they a good dad or husband? And so that's great. All right. Let's go with the favorite book you've ever read and why, or secondarily, your most gifted book that you give out frequently. So most gifted book, ironically, is Giftology. (laughs) So it's John Rowland's book, which seems like it would be fitting. So I think that's a great one. You know, there's a lot of great books that I've read. Most of the stuff that Seth Godin reads makes my head hurt. Mm -hmm. So Seth's book, Purple Cow, is one of those books that like, if you haven't read it, you should read it. It's an amazing book in that regard. On the sales side, Dan Pink's To Sell is Human. There's just a lot of stuff that for people who don't traditionally see themselves in sales is very relevant. There's some other books that are very action related. So there is uh, Jill Conrad's latest book is Sell More, Work Less. So it's about how to be more efficient and effective in what you do. Marcus Sheridan has a book called They Ask, You Answer, which is like a great blueprint for content marketing. And a lot of those are books that I gift also. So it goes both ways. And you had Derek Coburn on Networking is Not Working, another great one for people in your industry. Mm-hmm. All right. Last question here. What is the one piece of advice you can share with the listeners that's led to your success? Always know why people would work with you more so than what it is that you do. So if you understand why they would work with you and what results would make it impactful for them, then you always have great clarity over who your ideal client should be and why. And too often, people instead focus on what it is that they do and who the clients are that they want instead of for whom can I have the greatest impact. And if you focus on why those people need you and what the outcome needs to be, then you will always focus on the people you can impact the greatest and you'll never sell anything. Your clients will sell themselves on you. Incredible advice. Well, Ian, I just want to say thank you. This has been an incredible conversation. And what I love about it is you're talking about how to sell, which is oftentimes a dirty word, but everything we talked about during this conversation, it's all about integrity and really just figuring out what's the common solution we can co-create together. So thank you so much for sharing. It's been awesome chatting. Awesome, Brad. Thanks so much. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Elite Advisor Blueprint. For access to show notes, transcripts, and exclusive content from our show's guests, visit bradleyjohnson.com. And before you go, I've got a quick favor to ask. If you're liking the podcast, you can help support the show by leaving your rating and review on iTunes. Not only do we read every single comment, but this will help the show rank and get discovered by new listeners. It really does help. Thanks again for joining and be sure to tune in next week for another episode. The information and opinions contained here are provided by third parties and have been obtained from sources believed to be reliable, but accuracy and completeness cannot be guaranteed by Advisors Excel. The guest speaker is not affiliated with or sponsored by Advisors Excel for financial professional use only, not to be used with the general public or in a sales situation.